If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Abi Ramish. CEO and founder of Misfits Market, a direct-to-consumer online grocery marketplace focused on sustainability, affordability, and accessibility. Abi founded Misfits Market in 2018 at just 26 years old. In a crowded online grocery delivery space, he is building an entirely new food value supply chain that fixes the many inefficiencies across the food system. By working directly with farmers to rescue food that might otherwise go to waste, Misfits Market delivers high-quality produce and other items at an incredible value. In 2021, Misfits Market rescued 228 million pounds of food. The company has raised over 525 million in venture capital and is valued at north of $2 billion. Abby holds a degree in economics from the University of Pennsylvania and has been recognized as a Forbes 30 under 30 honoree and Entrepreneur of the Year by ENY. And with that, let's welcome Abby. Abby, first of all, I'm really excited to have you on. What you're doing at Misfits Market matters. I mean, it's just a beautiful mission and vision. Um, and, and and obviously so so important for so many people and COVID has changed your business quite dramatically. Um, I want to start with just you know the beginning. Where did the idea come from? Let's go back to those origin days and and tell us about that sort of aha moment where you said, "Oh my goodness, I've got to go build this." Yes. So the aha moment for me came. Uh, you know, it was this. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say it was my first trip to an apple orchard. Actually, I'd never been apple picking before, and, and it was my late 20s time. So uh, I went to an apple orchard in, in rural Pennsylvania. I was about two hours away from Philadelphia, and one thing I noticed was everyone was picking, you know, the apples off the trees. I was probably late, and so all the apples that had already fallen off, uh, the, the farmer and, and his team would basically pull all those apples, and, and they were putting it into a huge container and sticking it into a cooler. And so I was curious, and so I asked him where those apples went and what happened to them. And his answer was, these are misfit stuff. And so we don't have a, we don't have a, a retail channel for these because people don't want to buy them just because they fell off early. They may have a bruise on them. They may just be scarred or miscolored. Um, and so we don't have a market for them. And so that's when kind of things really started clicking for me a little bit more. Um, in a previous life, I'd worked in finance and was spent some time in food supply chain logistics. So I had like broad exposure to the category. But I think that, that first incident was when I was like, all right, there's perfectly fine organic apples here. They're getting tossed out thousands of pounds of them probably every month. And at the same time, I live in, in Philadelphia where a large chunk of the city is, is a food desert and, and you know the local bodegas don't have fresh produce. And so people are eating cheesesteaks and potato chips for lunch and dinner. There's got to be something to be done here that both tackles the waste and inefficiency side of things and the access and affordability side. So that's when, you know, that's when things really started, you know, started for me. And and the the first three month misfits was me by myself in a U-Haul truck driving to farms in rural Pennsylvania, 
picking up produce that they sold to me at a, at a discount, driving it back to a fulfillment center. Fulfillment center is a fancy word for it. It was probably like a 600 square foot, you know, cooler uh, warehouse in North Philly and packing the boxes myself with the help of a few other people that I hired off of Craigslist. That was the initial couple months of Misfits Market. Uh, first of all, I, I'm like smiling massively that the entire origin story was, uh, I'm pretty sure you probably went with with some friends apple picking uh, and, and this entire idea blossomed from there. I want to talk a little bit about just the stats around food waste in the United States. Uh, obviously, this is something probably everybody listening to this cares about. And obviously, we want nobody to go hungry. Can you tell us a little bit about those stats? You know, I, I pulled up myself that one third of the produce um, grown in the United States is thrown away, which is really sad. Why is it so broken? And, and t- talk a little bit about the problem. That one third number is, is kind of the average number that people talk about. There are certain products where the number is even higher. You know, we've talked to, to farmers and producers where they'll say, you know, up to 40 or 50% of my harvest is going to waste or, or can't go to retail markets for a variety of different reasons. There have been studies that have quantified the dollar impact of this on a per household level. And they essentially said it's about $2,500 per year per household of food that goes to waste in the United States, which is staggering because like, that's basically saying, you know, I could, I could go to every family that doesn't have access to fresh food today that is on food stamps and basically give them $2,500 worth of food for free and not waste it. So it's a massive number. The reasons are complex. Um, and as much as I think people want there to be sort of one reason, one silver bullet, the reality of it is there's a lot of different reasons why food waste exists. I think the one that we focus on is just inefficiency in the supply chain. There is food that doesn't get sold into retail outlets for reasons that we think are somewhat ridiculous, but it's just the way it's worked for the past 75 or 100 years. And because it's the way it's worked, it's the way things work today. Um, when you look at produce spec, for example, there's super specific specs around how produce can be sold into, into grocery stores. If a Honeycrisp apple, which is like the big juicy apple you're used to, isn't of a certain size, it's not sold to grocery stores. It's got to go to a different channel. If there's discoloring on kale or lettuce, uh, which by the way, these are super sensitive crops to grow. And so, you know, it's it's almost like kind of wild to think that everything's going to grow perfectly in the same size, shape, and color. But if there's discoloration on kale or, or lettuce, can't be sold to traditional retail outlets. If a squash isn't shaped the way a traditional butternut squash is shaped, can't get sold to traditional retail outlets. So a lot of this is just sort of, it exists because it's existed for 75 years and it's what suppliers and retailers think that consumers want. Um, and so there's been this sort of institutional kind of knowledge and process built around it. What we're trying to do is change that, right? We're trying to go, and there's a reason why we don't say ugly produce anymore, because it's not about it being ugly. It's about it being misfit for a variety of different reasons. And misfit is like the, the, the adjective we really want to use. We're trying to educate consumers and be like, hey, this is high quality food that otherwise would go to waste. And we're selling it to you at a really good deal. That's why you should get behind this mission. Bobby, you're taking me to exactly where I wanted to go, which is, can you first quickly just talk about what is the customer, the end customer experience um, uh, with with Misfits Market? And then can you talk a little bit about how you built trust with, to your point, for 75 to 100 years, consumers have been trained that an orange is supposed to be perfectly round and flawless, an apple is supposed to be of a certain size and flawless. You've clearly created tremendous trust with people to say, hey, come, come get the Misfits. Um, talk a little bit about how you thought about building that trust. Yeah, definitely. So, so today, the customer experience is surprisingly simple. You go online to our site, you order food. And when we started, it was just produce. It was 40 different produce items and you could semi-customize. Today, it's over 550 grocery items, produce, meat and seafood, bakery, dairy, pantry staples, et cetera, all sourced 
inefficiently from the supply chain and all delivered at a really good discount. So you go and build your box. We put it all in. We pack it in one of our fulfillment centers. We ship it to your doorstep. You receive it. You open it up. And when you open it, the thing we get most from our customers, the commentary we get the most is, huh, this isn't as weird looking as I thought it would be. Um, right. And, and most people are expecting something dramatically grotesque, but you know, when they open the box, the reality of it is it might be some apples that are a little bit smaller. They might get some potatoes that are shaped a little bit funky. They may, may, may get, you know, kale, like a head of lettuce or kale that's a little bit smaller. There might be a lot that looks perfectly normal. It's just excess shipments or uh, overabundant harvest. And so one of the things that we, we really spent time educating customers on is like Misfit has a lot of different reasons, right? It's not one bucket. It's not, it's all discolored or all too small. You know, there are so many different reasons why things are not sold through traditional retail channels, and we're kind of aggregating across all of them. That education process has been critical. The trust piece is also really important. And I would say we're still building that trust, right? It's it, when you look at, you know, the, you know, the 75 million households in the US, we still serve a very small portion of that growing quickly. But I think most people, when they first think about the, the platform, they're like, is there something wrong with the product? Is there like quality issue or a defect? And the route of it is there isn't. It's kind of random arbitrary reasons why these aren't sold and why we get it a good deal. And so we're spending a lot of time with like inbox collateral, email campaigns, partnering with folks like Bobby Flay to, to sort of really help drive awareness and education around what our platform is and why something's misfit. First of all, um, I so appreciate that. And I, I appreciate the fact that I think consumers are incredibly price sensitive, especially with everything going through COVID and the fact that 78% of the country lives paycheck to paycheck. Can you talk a little bit about the discount? And you know, one of the things I, I love is you really describe yourselves as an affordable online grocery store. That's really what you guys are, are going after. And you know, behind the scenes, you're taking all those produce that typically would literally go to the garbage can, which is kind of a, a beautiful mission to solve. Can you talk a little bit about the affordability angle and how you thought over the last few years about starting to build that customer base? Yep. If you attend any of our internal meetings at the company, I start with the same slide in every single meeting. And every personal leadership team does that as well, which is to what we're building. And we're building an affordable online grocery store. We're building a value, value-focused value online grocery store, either one. At the end of the day, for me, I think value and ex- affordability and accessibility, it's what this is all about at scale. One of the things that I realized early on was when you look at grocery and food delivery in the US, every existing platform still focuses on the wealthy urban customer. The customer that already has access to 10 different grocery stores within like five blocks and can order on any one of like six or seven different delivery apps. Like that's the customer that online grocery has been built around. And that, that, that urban affluent coastal customer is what all these other new up and coming platforms focus on as well. Meanwhile, when you look at like the suburban family of four that's value conscious, that lives 40 minutes away from the nearest Kroger or Aldi or Publix, that customer hasn't really had e-commerce options for grocery, primarily because the options haven't existed or because if they do, they're way too expensive. And importantly, that customer is not the type that's want to pay 30% premium to get a shopper to go shop on the rehab at a store and deliver it. It just doesn't, the math doesn't work for that consumer. And so you know, our belief is that consumer has been left out of the grocery e-commerce uh, revolution. And when you go even further out into like these rural and semi-rural areas that are food deserts, census designated food deserts, um, and by the way, there's 40 or 50 million Americans that today live in Cessna des- uh, the designated food deserts. They have no access whatsoever. It was fascinating. We serve parts of New Mexico that are on um, Native American reservations. And we we received some emails from customers that said, we can't explain how excited you are that that you serve here because it, it's two hours for us to drive to the nearest grocery store, a two-hour drive. 
in, in New Mexico. So like those types of customers have never had access. Um, and it's been a combination of access and affordability. So for us, it's the most important thing. And, and what I see internally also is that for us, sustainability isn't like a branding thing. You know, like I, I think for a lot of, especially for direct consumer brands, it's this sort of, you know, the ESG like branding thing it really matters. And, you know, we're sustainability because people care about it and, and it's feel good. Yes, it is that, but it's also what drives the value and affordability on the other side of the equation for us. And so it's not sustainability or value. It's value because of sustainability, the way we source, the way we buy, what we buy. That's ultimately what's driving the discount to the customer. That discount to the customer is the value access, the affordability piece. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I would love for everybody listening, can you describe what a food desert is? Because I, I, you know, not everybody necessarily knows exactly what that means, um, but obviously it's a massive problem here in America. Yeah, it's a huge problem. So I think the, the official census um, definition is if it's an urban area, it's folks who live, um, I think, at least 15 miles away or 15 minutes, 15 miles away from uh, a fresh food source, healthy fresh food source, it's a rural area, slightly larger. I can get you the exact numbers on what those are. But basically, specific populations and how close or how far they are from food access and specifically, like, there's certain benchmarks of healthy food access. Yeah, it's healthy food. Got it. And, and it's massive, right? And, and, you know, I've lived in Philadelphia for the better part of the, the last decade. and you know, you go to parts of West or, or North Philadelphia, and the only food you have access to would be the local bodega that carries, you know, shelf stable, like basically 10 different types of potato chips and soda and cheesesteaks. And that's, that's really what you're eating. So if you go try to buy fresh produce anywhere and, you know, forget about high end organic fresh produce, just like conventional produce, uh, you know, a- apples, oranges, lettuce, you can't, you got to go take the public transit system 45 minutes or, th- you know, an hour away to go find that. I want to talk about your logistics side of your business. So one of the pretty powerful things is in a really short period of time, expanding to almost 50 states. What were your biggest lessons there? A lot of people listening themselves are building logistic businesses around the country. Um, can you talk a little bit about your learnings there? Yeah, it's been um, it's been one of the more challenging things for us to do in scale. And, and frankly, when we first started the, the company, that's the thing that we got the most pushback on from everyone, from investors, from people who who've kind of um, seen the graveyard of grocery delivery companies in the past, has basically said, hey, one, the logistics of grocery are already really hard. Two, the, log- the logistics of fresh grocery delivered to these rural and, and suburban areas that are super far away from micro-fulfillment centers and super far away from on-demand delivery services, it's impossible. And I got that a lot from everyone, is that it's literally impossible to do the math will never work out. And my argument was, well, our job is to figure it out, right? The, the whole point of startups and raising venture capital is to venture out there and do something that other people haven't done. So we're going to figure out a way to do it. And yeah, if other people haven't figured it out, great, that's fine. We will figure out a way to do it. I want to talk a little bit, Avi, about the future. You fast forward a decade, food has changed. I mean, I think for anybody that has not lived through COVID, we just know food is changing, right? Not only are we cooking more, but just how we think about health and wellness, a lot has changed. If you fast forward a decade from your perch, what are some of the things that are really obvious to you about food trends that are happening that you think are the most exciting? 
Yeah. Um, a few things come to mind. I, I think one is, so today, like healthy food is this category and people call it different things. There are grocery retailers that call it NOSH. I think NOSH is like natural, organic, something, something. Um, and, and, you know, healthy food aisle, organic food aisle. I think in 10 years, that being like a subset of food and grocery won't be the case anymore. I, I think like natural, healthy, fresh is going to be embedded in every part of of the food and grocery ecosystem. If anything, it'll almost be like there's the unhealthy section of the grocery store for treats and for things that you want to like splurge on. But the rest of, of the grocery store and the rest of what you're buying is healthy by default, as opposed to how it operates today, where it's the opposite. Like you're looking, you know, people go to a health food store to buy healthy food, not their average grocery store. There's a health food section in the grocery store. I think that's going to shift. I think it's already starting to shift. I think you see CPG brands, when you look at like who they're acquiring, they're trying to actively acquire into the natural, organic, healthy, sustainable ingredients like that. Those are the spaces that, that end up being the most acquisitive. And, and so I think we're starting to see that transition already, first and foremost. And I think then platforms like ours and folks who do like you know, healthy, organic food, they're going to become even more mainstream than they are today. Two, I think that the idea of, and this is sort of like a, it was driven by COVID tailwinds. I think it'll continue. I think the idea of groceries delivered to you will become even more mainstream. I'm biased. I'm in that space. But when you look at the grocery market today, it's a trillion dollars spent annually in grocery, $975 billion. And still, even post-COVID tailwinds, it's still sub 10% that is digital. Um, and that includes us. That includes Walmart e-commerce, Instacart, all the big players, still under 10% of overall groceries. That's wild. That's so much... I mean, you think about it, you're like, it's a segment that we all need every day, all the time, and it's only 10% digital. That's wild. Yeah. And if, if you look at any other category, digital penetration, whether it's uh, you know, electronics or clothing or jewelry, like e-com penetration is way, way, way higher. And grocery is like the weekly thing that you're going to do. And by the way, I would argue it's probably the, the predictable weekly thing that you're largely buying the same thing of every single week. And that's still not digitized, which is kind of crazy. And I think cost and value is the reason why, because I think still today, grocery delivery ends up being this premium service. Um, and, and once it becomes accessible to the value conscious customer, then I think it'll become democratized and expand to everyone, which is sort of one of the problems we're working on. So I think grocery delivery will be super mainstream. And then the, the sort of related piece there is I think that the idea of choice is going to shift a little bit. And I think we saw that during COVID as well, where you know, people realize like, hey, they realized because they were forced into doing it, but they realized I don't need to walk through a grocery store with 85,000 items to pick my groceries for the week. And I don't need to spend half of a Sunday doing that. Largely, what I'm ordering from week to week is the same. I can probably do that at you know one tenth the time with one tenth the skew surface area, and and we're starting to see that more in terms of how people interact with our platform too. Like they're they're not browsing for an hour to go buy their groceries. They go and they're like, here's like the ten things I need every week, and then let me like play around for five minutes to see if there's anything else cool I can add. And I think that's going to dramatically shift the way physical grocery stores think about real estate, shelf space, et cetera, and then also dramatically impact digital grocery stores that'll eventually become more and more personalized. And like, I will show you Alexa's digital grocery store and, and me, Abby will have a different digital grocery store and they'll start to be personalized over time. When you think about how COVID changed food um, or sustainability changed food, what does that look like in your head? Pre-COVID, I would say grocery, like online grocery delivery, it was, it was a niche segment, frankly. I think people who used it were taking a, you know, they were kind of taking a gamble and it was new. And again, it was really only available to a very small segment of the United States. And by the way, investor sentiment on the category was the opposite of what it is today pre-COVID. It was this thing where people would look at it and be like, yes, it's growing, but it seems really hard to do. 
And a, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the comments I got from from investors, you know, pre-COVID universe were was like, you know, a lot of businesses have died trying to do this. It seems really hard. And like, aren't people just going to shop at the grocery store anyways all the time because there's grocery stores everywhere? So it was this like niche, you know, side stage category. COVID accelerated everything and dramatically changed the landscape. And I think what people talk about is, you know, the demand shift and people ordering online a lot more totally. The other thing that happened was I think online grocery delivery became mainstream. Even if you weren't ordering groceries online before, even if you couldn't afford it, you knew about it now. You knew about the fact that you could order online, click and collect accelerated that grocery stores are working on, um, you know, third-party delivery infrastructure accelerated dramatically as well. So I think the biggest thing we've seen is this idea that online grocery is now mainstream and that the average household should think about that as a viable option, uh, option for them as it becomes more affordable. So that's probably the biggest thing. If you think about the biggest opportunity in food, you know, I'm, I'm hearing this health shift, but if there's like one or two weirder, quirkier things that you're kind of excited about under the hood, what would it be? I continue to be, there's probably a handful of things. I mean, I think that the rise of private brands, uh, which, you know, private brands has been, it's been a part of the retail strategy of a lot of companies forever, right? It's been, if, if you, if you go to a, you know, a grocery category manager from a traditional retail store and ask them, you know, what do you think about private brands? They'll say it's really important. But I think private brands has taken on a new meaning uh, post-COVID because consumers are almost forced to trust new brands overnight online. Um, and, and so whether it was us or whether it was you know, XYZ meat and seafood digital uh, online provider or XYZ baby food provider, I, I think consumers were like, I got to make decisions quickly on who I could trust online. And so th- that ability to trust new companies, new brands accelerated really quickly. And so I think the impact of that is going to be that you know, private brands is going to be more and more important for every retailer. For brick and mortar retailers, going to be important. For e-commerce retailers, going to be important. And I think that direct consumer brands within food, they're going to be able to build a loyal following behind a private brand a lot faster than they were pre-COVID. And I think that's simply because people have realized that they could, you know, they can gain trust digitally a lot faster than they could have three or four years ago. So you decided to make your headquarters in Philadelphia. That is sort of unique for a multi-billion-dollar business. Give us a sense of why and what are your edges because you're in Philadelphia. It was a very intentional decision, uh, and that's one thing I'll say. Right, there are some things that we've done accidentally, and it's worked for us. That was a very intentional decision. The reasons, like it's kind of part of our ethos. You know, we started in Philadelphia. We we sourced from farms outside of Philadelphia. Our first two or three warehouses were in the Philadelphia region, and so. I think Philly is first and foremost, very much in our ethos. The second is, if you think about what we're trying to do here overall, the theme is we're trying to source differently. We're trying to change consumer perception in this kind of like unique way. We're misfit in our in our brand ethos and kind of everything that we stand for. And so it almost didn't make sense for us to be a New York City or Silicon Valley company. Um, and, and, and I think we've benefited tremendously from that because we attract a different type of talent that wants to work at Misfits. We, we attract these folks that kind of think of themselves as Misfits in some way, shape, or form. We attract folks that are really scrappy. We attract folks that are willing to think a little bit differently and outside of the box when it comes to solving problems. And so, you know, we attract the type of people that look at Philadelphia and they're like, cool, I would love to work in Philadelphia. I'd love to work at a company headquartered in Philadelphia. And so I think it just, it, it's a part of that sort of like Misfit ethos of think outside the box. And if someone hands you a problem and, and, and says, this is an impossible problem. No one solved it before. The answer is not, all right, I can't solve it. The answer is like, let's figure out some weird, unique way to crack it. I love the misfit part of the culture. It's very clear. It's uh, very authentic. 
I want to transition a little bit to you. Uh, so a few questions. I always love to ask where people's entrepreneurship spark comes from. And obviously you moved to the United States from India when you were five, you grew up in Atlanta. Give me a sense of like where that entrepreneur DNA really came from. The fact that my parents immigrated here and spent, you know, a lot of time and energy how to figuring out how to make sure my brother and, and me both had amazing opportunities here. I think that was a very important part of the narrative that kind of crafted how I think about the world and entrepreneurship. The way I think about it is they've always wanted to do entrepreneurial things, but they almost couldn't because they're like, we got to have stable jobs and careers and, and pay to get our kids over to the US so that they can succeed. And so in a sense, I kind of feel like, and I said this a couple of interviews prior, I kind of feel like I am taking what would have been their entrepreneurial dream and sort of ex expanding upon it. The other thing I'll say is my parents at a very young age, they basically were like, you kind of have to figure stuff out yourself. So I, um, you know, and, and I've, I've joked with a few friends who, who kind of grew up the opposite way, but uh, I remember when I was 15 or 16 years old, my dad was basically like, you have to go get your own credit card. You have to go pay for your own stuff. I will help you with a down payment for a car, but you got to figure out the rest. And so at a very young age, I, I had to, I had to kind of like go and figure out how to make money, how to be scrappy. And so, you know, there, there's kind of a story I tell a, a lot of times, like, I started this business in, in late middle school, early high school, where I'd buy textbooks from my classmates, the used textbooks, and I would resell it on Amazon for a big premium. And so the idea was basically like, we use these books for eight months, and then they're basically brand new, and we just kind of leave them on our shelves, and never touch them. I could go buy that from people at a big discount and go sell it on Amazon at a big discount. Sounds oddly like what we do here at Misfits Market in, in, in a different category. And, and it was my way of sort of like, figuring out this scrappy way of making money in middle school and high school to do the things I wanted to do. Because you know, I didn't have an allowance. My parents didn't like think about things that way. They were like, if you want to do stuff, you're going to go make money and figure out a way to do it yourself. And so I, I think that that entrepreneurial scrappy spirit of like, I'm going to go figure out how to make my own living and how to go solve these problems myself, that was embedded in just how I grew up. Is there something that you've learned being a serial founder that has constantly made you better? I mean, I look back to when I was a founder at 23, you know, I was a kid. If I look back, I'm like, wow, I've learned so many different things that have made me better. What would be the thing that you like really feel like you could pay it forward to other founders listening? So first I'll say like, I feel like the word serial implies success. Um, and, and I, you know, I'll be honest, right? Like, so <laughs> I've started a ton of things that haven't been successful. I'd call myself like a serial starter of things and, 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 you know, a, a serial entrepreneur. And they're like, I tried to get them off the ground, but, you know, candidly, of the 25 or 30 different startups that I tried to get off the ground, you know, one is Misfits, which is successful and hopefully will continue to be successful. And there's maybe like one or two that had some minor success, but the other 25, 23, 24, 25 were not successful. But I think they were critical and paramount in building that foundation for me. And if there's one thing I, I learned is that the ability to take as many shots as you can is really important. And the resilience to kind of keep going is critical as well. And I actually find that being over-analytical as an entrepreneur can be a pretty big detriment. Uh, and I kind of think this idea of like a little bit, you have to obviously be smart and analytical, but you need to be a little bit naive and you have to be, you have to have this sort of like biased reaction. And the combination of those three things is really what's going to allow someone to be successful in entrepreneurship. If you're overly analytical and spend the first six months trying to build a business plan that's perfect, you're going to scare yourself out of starting something, getting it off the ground. Obviously, if you rush in too quickly without doing a little bit of work and diligence, then you know that's not good either. But to me, I think those experiments that I did over the past five, six, seven years, they got me to a point where I understood what the balance of analytical and bias fraction. 
I love that. Um, Avi, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a real pleasure for me. Um, everybody out there, if you want to learn more, you can check out misfitsmarket.com and you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Avi, truly a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you.